Roxy, yeah, just, I was don't. watching you adjust all the tiles, and it was driving my OCD nuts that I was just a little bit bigger than you, and then it adjusted perfectly at right at yeah, the end. Yeah, so. it, 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 it hey, takes me... He's still dicking around, ladies and gentlemen. All right, welcome to the Retake Lounge <laughs> with Lucas Vagnara. <laughs> still the, doing it. All right, there the, we go. The finicky podcast host and Nathan Katz. It's still um, off, but oh well. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas... <laughs> Anyways, guys, we are rounding up on our 1,000 subscriber giveaway, so make sure that you're subscribed to our YouTube and you'll be entered into that VivTech giveaway with over $300 worth of products. Uh, that being said, uh, make sure you're joining our Patreon. We have one of the best retic Patreon in the game. I think that our Discord's super, super active. I love all our members, so yeah, join in on the fun over there. Lucas, anything else? Yeah, I mean, we just got an awesome episode for episode 57. Um, we actually went into our Discord to ask for different topics that our, our Discord and Patreon community wanted to listen to. And this was a very popular demand. They wanted someone in the genetic lab testing ordeal. And um, I just want to give a shout out real quick to Duran Guerrero. He was over, I think it was Pomona. And um, that's when he co uh, connected with uh, Ben Morrill of Rare Genetics, who is who we have on tonight. And uh, I got his contact information and Ben literally within a couple days got back to me and we were able to set this up within like a week of us connecting. And so that is what we're going to be digging into. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll get into a bunch of this, but I think that the reticulated Python game needs to step it up with getting sheds out. Um, won't go too much more in detail, but I think there's a lot of benefit to having genetic testing for multiple reasons for retics, but we're going to let Dr. Ben Morrill take care of all of that stuff. So let's go ahead and bring him on. Whether you're just getting into retics or you've been breeding for years, the first place you want to visit is Stuart Design. More and more breeders keep showing up at shows on Morph Market and are all over social media. Sometimes it may feel possible to get anyone's attention. Stewart Designs helps small businesses like yours do big things through brand clarity, helping entrepreneurs to start and scale businesses that are easy to know and love. Their work can help any company or industry, but they've done a ton of work for ours. Stewart Design created the brands for US Arc, Canova, Reach Out Reptiles, Coiled, and dozens of other well-known reptile breeders. Like many of us, the owner of Stewart Design, Blake, is a keeper and breeder who fell in love with retics through first working with Garrett Hartle. Although Stewart Design does a lot of corporate work, Blake has a passion for working with people in the reptile industry. Stewart Design can help if you're just getting started or you're ready to take things to the next level, you're struggling to stand out and build your presence online or at shows, you don't want to be like the other guys or get lost in the crowd, and you want to make your own way doing what you love. And also, you have big ideas and know your business is special, but you need help sharing it with the reptile community. If something here resonates with you, reach out to Blake and have a conversation. To learn more or get started, visit stuartdesignbrands.com or call them at 855-SD-LOGOS. Clear Brands Own Markets. Stuart Design helps create them. If you are in the market for an enclosure for your reticulated python or any other one of your reptiles, Focus Cubed Habitats is your one-stop shop for not only the best looking cages on the market, but also provide amazing features and add-ons to your cages. 
we partnered with Focus Cute Habitats because they continue to innovate and change the way we house our animals unlike any other caging company out there. Their cages are designed intelligently and provide the most stylish and secure housing for your animal's comfort and well-being. Visit focuscubedhabitats.com for your animal's caging needs. Again, visit focuscubedhabitats.com for some amazing and stylish enclosures. We also want to thank VivTech Products for being an affiliate sponsor of the Retic Lounge. Stop by VivTech Products for the best UV spectrum lighting on the market that will enhance and improve your snake's overall well-being and health. Visit VivTechProducts.com and use the code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Again, visit VivTechProducts.com and use our affiliate code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Looking for the perfect accessories for your hatchlings or juvenile retics? Look no further than Heli Guy Serpents. Our sponsor, Chris Sexton, is coming in hot with an amazing 3D printer creating top-notch perches and other caging accessories for your beloved pets. Enrich your retics environment with their high-quality products. Use our promo code TRL10 for a 10% discount on your purchase. Visit them today at heliguyserpents.com and start giving your pets the best. Heliguy Serpents, the premier source for 3D-printed caging accessories. Again, that's www dot heliguyserpents.com and use our promo code TRL10 for 10% off all of your 3D printed accessories today. And Ben, what's going on, man? I'm happy to be here. Awesome, yeah, man. man. Happy to have you. Yeah. Another, another um, Utah boy in the house we just found out. That's yeah. right. I grew up about an hour and a half north of where you're at now. Yeah. Are you, are you a Sads Utes fan like cats? Um, not really. And then Utah State, <laughs> as far as football goes, was never good at all. So no, no, no. You, you I just don't wasn't watch much Utah of a State to win. No, we did okay in basketball a few years, but yeah. not not football. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, kind of the same goes with the the Utah football program. We've had a couple of good years, but are we ever going to be in the the playoffs and going for the trophy? I we'll see. I don't think we'll so. see. <laughs> You can get a washed up old coach like some teams do and just make a comeback and who knows, but we ha we have to have that, that perfect team again. Like we had, uh, 15 years ago, maybe urban Meyer comes back yeah, and just urban decides Meyer to go to, days. right. Exactly. <laughs> was that the year that, that the youths beat Bama? I think that was, yep. yeah. Yep. That was pretty big. Yeah. We had a UNLV game that year that was in the sleet and, it was miserable. Oh, just <laughs> you were you were shivering head to toe, but it was great football. Anyways, we're not here to talk about football. We're here to talk about your genetic testing. So you want to give us a little intro and kind of, you know, who you are, what, what you do? you're doing. Sure. Yeah, I would imagine like many people listening to this, I grew up loving reptiles, catching snakes and lizards as far back as I can remember. I uh found when I was moving out of my parents' house, I found my, my uh, journal, my fourth grade teacher had us write five lines every day in school. And I was writing about catching snakes and lizards and things. And so it's always been that way. Um, in high school, I reached out to the local university and said, Hey, is there a herpetologist that I could talk to? And 
amazingly, they gave me a name and he answered the phone and let me come in and work in his lab. His name is Dr. Joe Mendelson. He's uh, the head of the uh, uh, Atlanta Zoo Reptiles and Amphibians Collection and still doing some research. Uh, but that was a, a big part of getting me into academics. Um, and so I, as an undergrad and a grad student, I learned a lot of molecular biology. I ended up in an animal science department and using nice. the molecular biology for more animal species or more uh, food animal species like cattle and pigs. But um, the whole time, all I was ever thinking about was how I could potentially use this for reptiles. And so as soon as I got my PhD in 2011, I uh, went to the Tinley Reptile Show in October of that 2011, right after getting graduated, and uh, talked to a good friend, Sean Christian, who had, I had talked to for several years, of bred carpet pythons, and and uh, so we ended up deciding he'd done a lot of business work. I had done the DNA stuff. We were both interested in breeding reptiles, and so that's when we started talking about making genetic testing available in reptile species. and. I've been thinking about it pretty much every day since then. And in 2017 or 18, I think it was late 2017, we started offering a sex determination test from shed skins of colubrid snakes. And so that was the first thing we were able to make available. And then about a year ago, um, we were able to start offering morph testing in ball pythons. And awesome. so that just... I, I want to make as many different types of tests available that will be helpful to reptile keepers as I can. And that's what so we're working I'm, on. I'm guessing the colubrid thing was just like animals that were too small to pop and sex safely or. That's definitely part of it, but I like to explain it to people just like there's so many oil change businesses, like people can change their own oil, but a lot of people don't want to. If you have, two or three snakes and you don't want to learn how to pop or probe and you don't want to have to pay a vet. Um, like the very, very first, literally the very first sex determination test that I sold was before we made the link available, like we thought, but somebody somehow found it and ordered a test. And it was the owner of a um, tattoo shop in New York. And huh. he said he'd had this pet corn snake for 10 years. always wondered if it was a boy or a girl. And so you he go. sent one in and so yeah, we get you know all kinds of different some breeders of species that are difficult to sex, um, some people that are you know older and not able to use their hands like they used to, and it's just easier to send a shed in. And so there's a lot of different reasons why people use it. I know well, it's huge for. Oh, go ahead, Lucas. Sorry. No, that's no. That, I was going to say I know it's huge for certain species, like when you're talking about green tree pythons and and yes. you know other type of chondros that are just way too delicate. Yeah. Um, that, that's huge. Do you guys do that in the, the chondro game? So I did come up with a way that I could do it that was pretty complicated, and I did it for a little while. I had to I had to sequence the sex chromosome of the sire and the grandsire, the paternal grandsire. Right. And then I could use that information, and then any offspring that had those same markers I knew were male, and the ones that didn't were females. Um, but that was very difficult, and I, I, I couldn't scale that up. Um, so when we scaled up over the last year, I was no longer able to do it that way. But right. uh, we are just this this week, I'm supposed to get a whole bunch of data and hopefully we'll, we'll be able to have a single shed. So any chondro shed that you have, you should be able to send it in and we'll be able to do that just like we've been doing with colubrids. But awesome. the chondros have been really difficult to get to work. <laughs> it's It's been the number one test Sean and I wanted to do because we were carpet python breeders and had lots of 
green tree python friends and right. uh, we just couldn't get it to work but hopefully this fall will finally be it i okay. I'm, I'm finally getting my first chondro uh from bill Stiegel, yes. and he he was telling me at the time like when i was talking to him a year and a half ago like this is how early i was inquiring i was over it was at the arlington narbc and we were talking about it he's like yeah dude when you're ready he's like we'll be able to sex it with sheds and then you know he he I finally put the down payment down. And I was like, all right, let me know what I need to pay to get it tested. He's like, ah, he's not doing the testing right now, but he's supposed to be doing it soon. And I was like, damn it. Um, but I'm looking forward to that because anytime that, um, anytime you can sex a green tree Python without stressing it out anymore, like that, it, that's a win. Yes. Yeah. That that's like I said, the number one test we wanted to do. And it's the one we've spent by far and away the most money on developing and still failing. <laughs> I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than my brain can even comprehend. <laughs> well, and you've been able to make some serious waves over in the ball python industry, even just recently with some of your genetic testing. Yes. Yeah. So we are to the point now after being about a year into providing some testing, uh, we had just a couple of ball Python morphs that we could test for pied and clown. And, you know, a couple others came pretty quick after that. But um, this October, we should have about 35 different morphs and ball pythons that we can test for. Awesome. If you don't mind me asking, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, what What's your PhD in? So it's in animal science with a uh, focus in molecular biology. Okay, awesome. Um, I, I was just curious. You said you went to grad school. You got your PhD and just wanted to know uh, what what jimble jabble was after the PhD in order to know what you know. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I actually worked with the snake keeper there in uh, in Sandy in Utah. Uh, yeah, they're um, uh, or not Sandy, but they're they're a little further south. I actually uh, just picked up some shipping material from them. Yeah, that's not true. Too long ago. We're, yeah, I can't. Remember. Uh, they were in Ma in uh, Ma uh, I can't remember. Ma Starts not with Maple Maple Yeah, they were there at first. But they, uh, the city council like voted them out of there and they ended up suing them and getting a chunk of money to be able to help buy that warehouse. Yeah, that warehouse. I mean, they have so much space now and uh, yeah. they're, they're just in uh, Spanish Fork, I believe, is that's where they're it. at now. Yep, okay. That's where they're at. Yeah. So yeah, I uh, used a bunch of data that Colette collected over about 10 years uh, for my dissertation. So my, my dissertation is actually on the quantitative reproductive traits of ball pythons. Okay. So, and, and did you start that here in Utah? Yep. Yeah. I got my PhD nice. at Utah State University. Okay. Oh, and I'm over here asking you before the interview if you're a Utes fan or was that during the interview? But yeah, that, that's an insult. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> if you're talking football, the, even if you're from Logan, like you can't really be a Utah State University fan because they've never had a good team <laughs> Fair. Well, and now with all the conference shakeup like it's just like yeah, everyone from utah just kind of roots for utah unless you're die hard i guess guys we're going back to football talk all right Stop. let's let's keep it let's keep it focused all right <laughs> let's keep it focused <laughs> I blame um, so let me before we even jump into the retake stuff and i just kind of want to throw this out there so i'm gonna kind of ask questions like when we get to the retake side of things i just want to give you like a forewarning 
Um, the way that my brain works is I'm a skeptic at first and need the information. So if I sound like I'm questioning or challenging some of the things that you might be saying, it's not like to be an asshole or anything like that. It's just because I want like a deeper understanding and there's no one better to ask than you right now. Yeah. Perfect. Um, so uh, I just wanted to start off with that, but let's, I want to jump into a little bit about what you're doing in the ball Python game. I know that you said you've mentioned you've been able to do, I think you said 35 different morphs. Um, but, but what, so what exactly is the, the value and like what you guys have been able to do in the ball Python game? So I would say right now, the biggest value is for people, um, which this would translate to any species where they have many morphs to work or several morphs to work with. Um, but anyone that's trying to do triple hats, quad hats, you know, more than that. Um, like for me personally, I have some, I, I breed ball pythons and I breed Honduran milk snakes right now. I've bred several other species in the past, but those are the two I have right now. And for me, there were poshet males that I had that are poshet for one or two different things. And once I was able to do the testing, that changed my breeding completely. It changed which males I held onto, which males I sold. It changed, you know, how many females some of those males got, um, and it made it so I was able to make two or three triple hat clutches uh, that hatched out last year that I wouldn't have even done that pairing because I would have just been making like double or triple possets. Right. Uh, but with the testing, I, you know, I could do that pairing. And then after the first shed, I do the test and then I know which babies have what I need and which don't. And I can properly sell them to customers and they know if they're getting a head or a triple head or, you know, whatever it is, they don't have to by paw sets. So right. it's, it's a pretty big change in how you do your planning. It also makes it so like with ball pythons, you have not only recessive traits, but you have some uh, incomplete dominant traits that are pretty valuable. And instead of having to, you know, use a, a visual recessive animal to do your breeding, you can use a head. So if it's an expensive recessive, you can have two or three other dominant, incomplete dominant morphs on top of that and breed that head and then do the testing and keep the ones that get the hit instead of having to have that more expensive recessive animal that right. has those other traits. So, so it's just a, a way to be able to make a more designer type of animal faster and be able to know for sure which things you want to hold on, which things you want to breed and be able to sell. If it's a low dollar animal, you know that up front. It's not a pos hit that might be worth something and might not. <laughs> right. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, we just did a, uh, an episode on the retic market, but in terms of like stabilizing a market, this could go a long way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, so um, I, I think about this mostly in like the mainland retic world, but with Superdorfs as well, it applies. But like one thing that we talk about very often is overproduction, getting rid of animals um, to the wrong people not not suited for them and um one thing that has been a very big like i see it on facebook a lot in the retake groups is you know someone will will say they did a het to a, a non-het pairing and people are just livid and pissed off and they're like why are people doing post het clut like there's no reason for people to be doing that in the retake game when we have yeah. usually the visuals because we, we haven't been able to import for a while. So what we have for visuals there, they, they exist. Right. And so yeah. um, one, one thing that I think this really benefits with the retake community is just like, it can really cut back on overproduction and it, it really, I don't, I, 
it seems more valuable for a breeder, in my opinion. Like if you're not obsessed with and you don't have to get the visual recessive. So let's say we're talking about like uh ocelot, right? You want to buy a visual ocelot right now. It's eight thousand, ten thousand, twelve thousand dollars. Um and um you know, you can now just buy a het, figuratively speaking, if we, we get this underway in the retic world, which we'll talk on that in a second, but you get the opportunity to buy a head ocelot and take it to a, I don't know, a tiger or a phantom or whatever other codom you want to try to bring into ocelot. Yep. And now you have genetic testing available to know which animals you need to hold back. You no longer have to sell animals as poshets. Um, I, I don't know. It just, I think it, like you kind of mentioned before, it's a shortcut. And when I think of shortcuts, it's typically in like a negative way when it comes to breeding, but for retics with how many eggs they produce, like this is a huge shortcut. Now we, yeah, we can really how many, cut how many responsible homes there are out there. I mean, it's just, right. we'd be doing a disservice not to do that kind of stuff and to be even more selective on the clutches we're producing, you know, the animals that we're selling, holding back all that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, it's, it's just valuable. So, um, let me ask you this. I kind of want to bring in, oh, oh, it looked like he yeah. cut out. He's back. And he's back. All right. Can you hear Sorry. us? <laughs> no, you're yes. good. Okay. So, um, I'm going to bring in one of the first questions, um, from our Patreon. So we have a list of questions. Um, the first one is from Luke. Luke is over in Scotland. Um, it's, got a great collection he has a bunch of wild caught stuff because they can still have it over there but um so one thing that he wanted to know was do you guys predict having any trouble with annery i don't know if you you have heard about the annery gene and retixed um but there's typically trouble identifying visuals for anneries because a lot of hets are very strong does that play an impact at all when it comes to genetic testing and how that works out? Um, so the way I like to describe it um, for breeders is uh, what, so there's two, two big things that we're looking at. We're looking at phenotype. So that's when you look at the animal, that's what you see. Right. And so that's what you're talking about is phenotype. What yeah. I look at is the genotype is the code in the DNA that okay. makes it look a certain way. And so, for many things, the genotype, using the genotype, I can predict, predict the phenotype, but that's not always the case. Um, but in what you all are talking about, what I would expect would happen is we would be able to see, um, you know, for sure which ones are het and which ones are homozygous. Um, the only thing that would be difficult is if it ends up being like, we do have one morph in ball pythons, the desert ghost that ended up being polygenic. Right. Um, so that was much more complicated than we originally thought. Um, so we know two of the different genes that are on different chromosomes that um, affect desert ghost. Um, and we're going to have to learn more because there's at least one other one that plays a pretty big role. But so it, essentially, I need you all to send me annery sheds and let me know, you know, if I got you. I get that code. Yeah, if I get that code from, you know, 30 or 40 different anneries or head anneries or whatever you can send in, then I can see what the code says. And then going off of how you as breeders categorize them, whether you believe they are homozygous or heterozygous, 
then I can see what markers match what you're talking about. And that's when we'll know if, if the code will tell us, you know, it can, we can use that to predict the phenotype. Yeah. And, and I think where we're probably going to get into some complications is there's a lot of anery stuff out there that was sold as anery. And so if people are telling you it's the homozygous instead of the heterozygous, mm-hmm. it's going to be a clusterfuck for you. Um, I, I'm just <laughs> let, I'm letting you know ahead of time. Um, it's yeah. going to be a nightmare at first, but I do know for, I, I have one animal in my collection that without a doubt is homozygous for, for Annery, but I kind of have a prediction as well with Annery that is going to kind of be like desert ghost with the AB type of thing, because you'll see some Anneries that, that show and represent very weak compared to other Anneries that are like with like, without a doubt. Um, I, I see way too much variance between the two where I think it, Annery is playing a lot like it does in boas where there's different types of anneries and some anneries might not play well with others. Interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely could. If, if you as breeders are noticing a high variation in, in the phenotype, then there's a good chance it will be complicated genotype as well. But the only way I'll know is if I get sheds and, and, and look at the DNA. Yeah. And does it matter the age of the animal that you're sending sheds in? I, nope. I would assume not. Nope, it doesn't. The The only thing that you really need to be careful about is moisture, humidity, uh, being wet. Like if you come in and the whole shed is in the water bowl and, and you just came in on a Monday, you haven't been in there since Friday, it looks gross, then that, I'm probably not going to get any DNA out of that shed. Um, that's really the only thing to worry about is if you want to get a shed from a snake to send in for genetic testing, Check, check it every morning and every night um, when it's, you know, it's eyes go clear, you know, it's, you know, any day it's going to shed. Just check it every morning and night, pull it as soon as you can. We only need a piece about the size of a quarter to a silver dollar. We can do like 30 to 50 tests with that much shed. So you don't need to send a whole shed. You don't need to send a big piece, just a small piece. And so you remove it, tear out the cleanest, you know, flattest, prettiest part that's about the size of a quarter um, let that completely dry and then either put it into like a small envelope or a Ziploc. And that's, that's perfect. And I've run sheds that I've had in Ziploc bags just at room temperature after five years and they still work great. Now, can I ask you how many retic sheds have you been uh, testing so far? I think that I, I've done zero testing so far. I think that I have still less than 10 that have come in, if I remember right. Um, I do know, I do know this That's last, like a week or two ago, I think I just got another envelope with retic sheds. So that one, you know, maybe that one makes me a liar if there's a bunch in there. Um, but yeah, it, I have not gotten very many. Uh, most of the time what I found is there's a lot of people that are excited and say, Hey, yeah, I'll do this. But then you have to actually remember, make it happen, get them sent in, you know, get them collected and get them sent in. And sometimes that, you know, we get That's a lot that- of drop off. That, oh, that's, yeah, I, I was going to say that's my weakness. Procrastinate. Like I, <laughs> I have, name. I have a pair of prescription like that's inserts hilarious. for my sunglasses that have needed repair. And all I have to do is throw them through the mail and I'm good to go. I haven't done <laughs> it for like four months just because I just <laughs> haven't really had the time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just, I, I literally was like, I, I got a product that I wasn't a hundred percent satisfied with and I could have gotten the $400 refund, but the fact that I don't just want to send it back in the mail, I'm just going to settle for what I have. 
<laughs> uh, it's, it's it's one of those things i need i need to find a yeah. way to make to make it through but i mean but 10 like let me i'm gonna pause this here for a second um yeah i'm sending sheds before those prescription sunglasses that's the yeah I, I just me. i i i cannot stress the importance of us as a retail community getting together and getting behind this and finally doing it at the very least for morphs um like again wouldn't you like to be able to buy a het to take to a non-het and know what like you're going to like what you can keep back and what you can sell as a legit het because if we're being honest and if our integrity is good um a a pos het animal that you sell should not be valued more than than the the normal non-het because now now you're just you're trying to make money off of a, a pipe dream that might not pan out and um yeah like it's a way for you guys as breeders to make more money off of those pot head pairings um if you guys are worried about the financial aspect of it but yeah that that's what i'm going to be getting some some sheds out specifically annery ghost ocelot and anthrax for for the recessives um without a doubt i'll get them over to you but i wanted to ask you this um so uh, we have an awesome Patreon member, Christina, uh, with uh, Genetics Nerd, and she uh, she taught me the difference of a morph and a gene, right? And so, you know, we call them morphs because we don't know where on the DNA it's located. But let me ask you this. If you're doing genetic testing and we send these in, are you able to identify where within that genetic code that that morph lies and then can we therefore call it a gene um we certainly could in some cases so what what we do is um just really briefly we'll get like if we're working on annery we get like 30 annery sheds we know are either annery or head annery and it's okay if there's some of each and it's okay if we don't know for sure which or which that won't mess up our test but what we need is 20 to 30 that we know I either have one copy or two copies of Annery. And then we have another 20 to 30 sheds. We know none of them have Annery. So it's okay if they're albino or pied or some other morph. We just can't have them have uh, Annery. And then we sequence the whole genome of all 60 of those, 40 to 60. And then we use um, very, very complicated bioinformatics software that will look for specific DNA changes in the Anneries that are not present in the other pool. And then we go after those that are only seen in the anneries, not seen in the, in the normal or other pool. And so sometimes we are able to find markers that are in a gene that's known. And we know that it makes sense. Like with albino, it ends up being in the ACA2 gene. We know that causes albinism and all kinds of different species. Then we can say, okay, yeah, we're pretty confident this is the gene that actually causes this mutation, you know, causes this to be an albino. Um, what we can't know for sure sometimes, especially since we're working in species that don't have really, like if we're working in the mouse or, you know, something like that, um, you know, it would be much easier to know for sure what the DNA code is, what gene it is. But since we're working in, in ball python or in reticulated python or, you know, species where there's not as much genomic work done, uh, sometimes we don't know for sure what gene it's in. And so that takes some more time. So I might have a test that I know there's this change that's in all anneries and not in other. 
So it's a really good test to know whether you have anorexia or not, but it might not be the actual, you know, it, it might not be the actual change that causes it. It might be one close by that always okay. passes with it. So, okay. So not guaranteed time, that we can call it a gene, but I guess, yeah, like I was, that's what I was going to say. It's just the more that we do it and the more that we learn, the more yeah. that we're going to, the, the chances increase that we'll be able to identify which gene is yes. causing the mutation. Okay. Yeah. So in ball pythons where we have the most headway, there's a couple of groups, one at Eastern Michigan university, um, Dr. Hannah Sadell, the ball Python project, they, she's working with her students and they've been able to find the actual genes for like all of the al different types of albino in ball pythons and piebald. Even and lavender? Hypo. Yep. Yep. We know awesome. that's actually an Aka too is cool. And then, uh, they there's another group in Canada um, and they were the very first ones to do a ball python mutation. They found piebald and then they've also found and that's published. And then they've also found a couple others since then. And uh, let's see. They also the really cool additional step they did is they worked with a group in Georgia who did the first CRISPR editing of a reptile to make an albino an old lizard. And so awesome. the Canada group worked with the Georgia group, gave them the piebald um, code, and then they made with CRISPR, they made a piebald anole lizard. So that was pretty sweet. Wait, what? That's, That's wild. pretty sick. Yeah. That is insane. Very cool. So, yeah, there's been some really cool academic work in this area. Um, yeah. It's not something that they get a lot of support from other academics because you're doing it on, you know, pet species and blah, blah, blah. Right. But, a species, and that's, it, that's the first thing that ran in my mind that someone from, you know, Michigan and, and a university at that matter is doing it on an animal that's not indigenous to the U.S. in the first place. Um, yeah. So I think that's pretty cool, though. Um, yes. So a yeah. couple people on our Patreon asked us this Um but I'm going to just kind of read right here. Jason, Jason wants to know, he's curious how many samples it takes to generate a simple baseline for a new species. You know, so let's say we're talking about anery or albino or whatever the case it is in retics that we don't have. How many samples does it really take for you to be able to hone in on it? Most of the time, if I have 30 or 40 um, that are different individuals and they can't be like all from the same clutch. <laughs> so with ball pythons, that's not a problem because the clutch size is small, but what would not work is for you to just send me all the sheds from the babies that just came from one clutch. Um, what I need is, is enough other genetic variation to be able to know which genetic change actually goes with the morph we're trying to find. So if we had at least, you know, five different clutches in those, you know, 25, 35, somewhere in there, um, that's usually enough that we can find it. Okay, cool. Good to know. And if yeah. I can get 50 or 60, that's even better. That makes the bioinformatics faster and it's less right. false positives that we have to chase. So I mean, it, it sounds like a lot, like it sounds like a lot, but in reality, like how many people are working with different genes that, that can easily send it? Like, even if each person working with, let's say, I don't know, um, you know, purple or, or orange glow or, Actually, no, we'll get into the allelic stuff in a second here because that, that's kind of interesting. But um, like just send one shed in. And if everyone sends one shed of that morph that they're working with, we'll get it done. Like it, yep. it's really, I, don't, I feel like it's not that big of an undertaking. Or if there's 10 breeders that are going to breed on one side or the other as a visual, 
So you know all the babies are going to be hats. If there's 10 breeders that will just send five from that clutch, right. then you've got 50 right there. Yeah. I'm going to do that with anthrax here in a bit. I got a bunch of babies that are shedding and I'll send some sheds over as well as, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for that. Perfect. But uh, Nathan, why don't you ask that other question that, that Luke was talking about in regards to allelic genes? Let me get it back right now. Yeah, mine closed down. I was hoping you had it open, but I, I did. I literally just switched as you asked that. So <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, it's his second, third one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, do issues arise from allelic morphs? Will they be able to tell the difference between a het mocha, caramel, white, purple, for example? So just like the different strains of albino, like we are, were talking about. Are you familiar with that? That. With, um, with those I'm, morphs, I'm, I'm more familiar with the the ball python stuff, but that's it. Sounds like it's very similar, like with albino and candy. Basically, or yeah, that, yeah, that's what I was there, kind of thinking. Yeah, yeah so, so it, like you can. Oh, I cut off again. It's Give good enough. We can wait. We can. This is juicy. Patience is a virtue, or something like that. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. I don't know why it wants to drop. You're you're good. So so yeah. Just like for example, orange glow is the visual double recessive of caramel, albino, and like purple or white or one of the Clark strains. And so do you do you see an issue with? Um. Oh man, damn it, Nathan, are you on mute? Are you laughing hard and I can't hear you? yeah you were right there all right um anyways while that's happening um okay you're back um nope he's not (laughs) this is gonna make for a great blooper we need to have just an episode of running bloopers (laughs) oh the timing uh no that's okay what i'm actually gonna have him do is i'm gonna have him so fucking funny I'm going to see if I can have him uh, just kind of refresh. And that that was good. All right, you're back. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. It's almost like he did it on purpose. All right. So in the meantime, what we're going to do is I'm going to go back to to me and Nathan here, and we'll see if he jumps back on here in a second. But um, anyways, if you guys have any comments or want any further questions, uh, ben, Ben did actually just come back. Ben, I'm going to ask you if you don't mind, um, hit the refresh and rejoin. Jeez. No, I, I think that he, he hit the, refresh. Oh, okay. I hope so. Um, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I think we're good. If you guys have any questions or any comments down below, but, um, I, I kind of want to take the moment while he's doing that to kind of just discuss, like, I feel like we really need to like, why? This has been around now for a few years. Yeah, Why? it's something I've been watching in the ball python market. It was just something that I guess in my mind was just not being worked with in retics yet. So I, I was waiting, but I don't know why wait and not just reach out. Right. No, I, I totally agree with that. Um, but anyways, I think we got Ben back and he's... Uh, literally cut out <laughs> right again 
This is ridiculous. <sighs> Lucas, just shut up and maybe maybe it'll stay. I'm texting don't him to ref- Don't say anything about it and it'll, okay. it'll be good. Refresh your browser if you can, Ben. Oh, wait, no. Don't. Don't. Because you have full service right now. I'm bringing him back on. All right. Okay. We're good. That that was fun. <laughs> um. All right. So we your, were talking your about timing was impeccable. Let me. Just it was say that every <laughs> every time I would be like, "All right, he's back." You would just shut off right again. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it! <laughs> so let me kind of also explain another example of a lelic. So we have 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 you heard of a cow reticulated python? Mm-hmm. Right. So to make a cow, you take a phantom. That's that's a incomplete dominant, and you take an OGS, which is in theory right now it's a it's a uh, recessive, you know, mutation, um, and you breed those together and it creates a cow. So they're allelic, right? So any any issues you see arising with that kind of stuff, or can you just explain how that works? So different albinos in ball pythons, um, the ones that are allelic is what was known as albino cow, uh, candy and toffee and eastern michigan they were able to find two different things it albino and then the the candy and toffee the exact same thing and so there's just two different mutations one that causes the normal albino another one causes what breeders were calling candy and toffee um, then okay. we have another allelic complex called the the yellow belly complex and you have yellow belly, asphalt, gravel, specter, and spark. So there's five different, what breeders were calling different things. And a couple of them, I thought maybe it was going to be the exact same thing, but all five ended up being different genetic codes. So there are changes in the same gene, but there are five different changes that cause five different looks, five different phenotypes. And so we'll be able to, once we can look at the code, we can say, okay, if there's four different allelic things going on that you're seeing different as a breeder, uh, we'll be able to look and see if there actually are four different codes or if there's three different codes and really two that you thought were different are actually identical. Okay, cool. Um, so that, that should work out fine. Then I, I feel like, I feel like if you guys provide the explanation enough as well, um, because at the end of the day, what we're actually really doing is we're singling out and isolating a specific morph, right? And so as long as we understand, for example, in that same sequence, if we understand what OGS is, orange ghost stripe is, and whether it's a head or not, you know, and, and, and same thing with, you know, obviously a phantom is a incomplete dominant, so we know what phantom is. Um, but yeah, as far as like the albino stuff goes, it seems like you guys have had that covered with the ball python game for a while now. Yes. Yep. Yeah, okay. so I don't see that being a problem at all. We should be able to figure that out. So our our next question from Luke, and it's a question I have kind of on my own, is uh, I remember hearing uh, a, about trying to predict adult size from hatchling sheds. Is that still a goal, or is it more morph IDing at this point? Really, from from our standpoint we can only do what we get sheds from you all for. So if people are excited about morphs and you send me morph sheds, you're going to get morph tests. Um, if you're more interested in the length, what I would need is, you know, 
30, 40, 50 sheds that are coming. This is kind of a specialized thing, so this might not be as easy to do. But um, if, if we get 30, 40, 50 sheds that we are from animals that are going to I think this is a first for us. No, it's not. I mean, to this extent? No, it's not. You sure? He's back. No, no, okay. No, Let no. me bring him back. Okay. I think it was Ryan and Erica McVeigh. Oh, that's right. They were having issues as well. Um, so. <laughs> uh, we got, you know, we got little bits of information so far. We'll, we'll get the rest. Don't worry. Right. We will. Um, now, one thing that I do want to bring up when he gets back in, and we're not even going to bring him back on, even though he's here, because I don't want to jinx it real quick. So we're just going to keep talking for a second. Um, but I, I am interested in this is kind of the length aspect is one of those topics. That I definitely um, had some of the challenging aspects that I want to talk about. Um, see, I was about to bring it back on and he, he dropped off. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely I mean. As far as like, do you have questions or concerns about how length is? Let me just do this. I'm bringing him back. Um, ben. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask, uh, actually, no, let me. Oh, my God. You know what? I was thinking in my mind, in the back of my mind, I was like, this is going to be an editing nightmare, but screw it. <laughs> We're going to let it roll. All right, <laughs> Let, let's let's all just take a deep breath real quick. <sighs> just take a deep breath real quick. See, <laughs> this is great. Uh, I am going to tell him right here. I'm going to text him again to refresh. Kick the kids off the Wi-Fi. <laughs> That's what I always say. When my internet's going slow, I yell at my imaginary kids and say, get off the damn Wi-Fi. Damn it, Johnny. <laughs> what would you damn name it, your Allie, kids? get off the Wi-Fi. I named her Allie because my last name's Katz. Okay, Allie Katz. Can you please, if you have a daughter, <laughs> please do that. that. Doesn't it sound like a stripper name, though? Like. I, I that's know. no, I was thinking porn star. Like, you totally should. Oh, yeah, because that's, that's what every father wants. Absolutely. No, I take that back. I'm literally <laughs> worried. Okay, Lucas. I take that back. Welcome uh, back to the free ticket. I take that back. I, I literally, my heart sank when I said that I'm wearing my girl dad shirt right now. And I just have never felt more shittier in my life before. Oh, man. Freudian Damn. slip. Oof. Absolutely. I said. It was definitely sarcasm. Oh, that was so funny. I would literally bury my daughter before that can we, happened. Can we just have an outtake episode? <laughs> ben, did you get the chance to refresh? Yep. Gotcha. I, I can. Did you did you have an opportunity to refresh or no? Okay. Okay. That let me. Might work. 
yeah, you might I might have to mess with the screen real quick. So give us a moment while we go ahead and bring him back on. Um... No, 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 that, it's just that's OK. Yeah, we're, we're all in different locations. Shit happens. Yeah, let me go ahead and bring this back over and we'll get you reconfigured here on our screen. This is not working. Literally keep, just keep switching back and forth to stupid crap. So, all right, I'm going to switch this over. This is the part. See, this is nice. This is the part where I get to cut out and stick around with. Um, no kidding, right? Um, okay, so there we go. I'm going to delete that, and then I'm going to bring you back on crop and scale. Get you dancing in the middle of us right here. Boom. And all right, we're going to go back. All right, so finally, hopefully, after all the technical difficulties, we'll be done with that aspect. But um, if you remember what even you were talking about as far as length goes, go ahead and kick us back off. So the sheds we need to have sent in for a, a adult length test. Um, I would need like 30, 40, 50 sheds from animals we know are going to be over um, like 15 feet long as adults. So they need to be from animals that are already, you know, are going to be big. And then we would need another 30, 40 from animals that you know are never going to be over 10 feet or 12 feet or whatever, wherever you want to draw the line. Okay, um, so I, I'm going to stop you for a second. I, yeah. I don't know if Weston from Wildfire ever listens to our podcast, but Adler, I'm telling you to make this a clip. Weston, <laughs> I need your sheds. I'll send them over. <laughs> I know you have animals that are over 15 You have feet, monsters. And you're not far from me, so please, Weston. Just give me some sheds. I'll send them his way. Um, I wanted to ask you real quick. So are you saying that you'll be able to pick up where on the genome, where what, which genetic refers to length? So most likely um, there will be many. So it'll be a polygenic trait. There will be many different genes that contribute to whether it's going to be long or short. Um, so in humans, they just did, I think it's within the last year or two, they did a very large study on lots of different genetic work that's been done on height in humans. And there's like 10,000 different genetic mutations that they know have something to do with how tall a person will be. Um, who knows if there's going to be that many in pythons, uh, but we certainly don't need to know, you know, if there are 10,000, we don't need to know that. We need to know like the top 10 or something like that. Um, so what we would do is the same thing I described earlier, we would use that pool of for sure over 10 feet for or should for sure be under 10 feet or mo most likely to be under 10 feet. Um, we would look at those two pools and use that same uh, bioinformatics software to pick out genetic changes that are present in the smaller, the shorter pythons and then absent in the larger ones. And then what we could do is say, you know, you hatch out some babies from a cross or something like that. And then, or you just bought one, somebody told you is such and such, but you want to, you know, send a shed in, you just send a shed into us. It doesn't matter if that baby just hatched out or if it's five years old or whatever, we'd be able to tell you the percent chance, Hey, from, from, and we have to have a database. So we have to start building this. But once we have a database, we could say, Hey, you have a 70% chance that this snake will never be over 10 feet 
that would be the kind of thing we could do. Or this one is 20% chance it'll be under 10 feet. Or this one's 95% chance it will never get to 10 feet. That's the okay. kind of test we could get eventually. But it's definitely something we have to build to. We have to have reference genetics to right. be able to work from. Just so it's a, a lot a like- A large sample you, size, basically. What's so, that? A large sample size then. Yeah, it, it eventually can be kind of like your dog. You want to know what percent, you know, different breeds your dog is. This right. would be the same kind of a thing. We would have markers for short, short retics and markers for large retics. And then we could tell you, hey, this specific baby has a lot of markers for a short retic. That's, this is your okay. chance it will stay short. So, so in terms of short retic versus long retic, we start getting into locality and that's kind of where yeah. I, I get the most skeptical, I guess. I, I, is, so, is, oh, is that a goal of yours to look for be, locality? Before, oh, sorry. before we go into that, that, I mean, it's a great question because I want, I definitely want to dive into the locality stuff, but before we even go into that, as far as length and stuff goes, can I provide like a recommendation on, and and it's dumb that I'm even recommending to someone who has a PhD in all this crap, but, <laughs> but I don't um, know ticks, so. yeah. So, so here, here's my concern about like length, right? Because length is also very much um, correlated with, with diet, right? Um, because even a pure Kalatoa, which is a super dwarf gets 10, 11 feet if fed very well. And there's some larger animals that, that do get that big. Um, and so, I guess what I would like to see as far as the, cause the way that my brain conceptualizes like length when it comes to uh, these crosses with Superdorf and mainlands, right? I'm going to use those generic terms because that's what I think we need to be able to try to extract is because we, we don't know what, you know, we don't have um, coordinate uh, coordinate data to determine specific locality. And this is a scientific component. So if any of you have watched our previous episode with, what is a locality, uh, a pure locality retic? Um, you know, we have our standards for the industry that are are industry wide with with different type of animals. But I guess what I think would need to happen is we would need to find out the differences of the um, superdorf in the mainland when it comes to size, because the way that I see it is like you have a sixty two point five percent superdorf and the rest is mainland, right? Theoretically. It, it, the way that I see it is that there's still a chance that some of the babies in those clutch get the length more so from the mainland side than they do the superdorf side, whereas other animals might get it from the superdorf side. So I think that's the important thing to isolate when it comes to length. And rather than saying like, rather than giving hope of a length, because again, diet is everything. Um, You know, I can keep a mainland 10 feet. I totally can. Um, but I can also push that mainland to be 14 feet. Um, and it's no different with superdorfs, except that maximum length is going to be smaller than the mainland. And so rather than pushing it to a certain length, I'd rather, I'd rather that genetic testing give us how much genetics of that animal are contributed from the superdorf side instead of the mainland side, as opposed to, cause we're already running into a lot of sales tactics in terms of like size and I'd rather see more of like, no, there's way more genetics pulling from the Superdorf world than the mainland world. And that's going to make people, I think, feel more confident with buying a 62.5% or a 56.25% Superdorf 
where where they can know that the specific animal they're looking at does that make sense yeah i mean absolutely when when we already have established that we can't get receipts and importation uh you know data at least solid importation data of what happened with these animals right did did that make sense in terms of like determining potential size is i i i feel like that's a lot more of a I don't know. I feel like that's a good guide for buyers still knowing that length is, you know, it's determined by so many other factors as opposed to just genetics alone. It's, it's totally diet as, as well, because in theory and, and even scientifically superdwarfs are a result of insular dwarfism with smaller availability with food, um, smaller prey size. And so naturally through the next 50 years, we're going to be reversing that insular dwarfism because we're feeding superdwarfs pigs and rabbits and massive rats that they don't have on the islands. So therefore we're already slowly going to be reversing what, what evolution has done for these animals. And so I'd rather it, I'd rather see it go towards like, no, this snake has a lot more of the superdwarf component than it does the mainland component. Yeah. And so that's the cool thing about right now is it's kind of in you as retic keepers and breeders, it's in your hands, how you want this to be structured. The pools that I compare, it could be, you know, Hey, this is a group that we, you know, can as a group agree are super dwarfs or, you know, as small as they can be or how, however you want to call that group that doesn't make people mad. <laughs> right. And then these are mainlands. And then we could design a test that will tell you, hey, this is, you know, 70% of the markers are from the, the super dwarf group. Yeah, that would be huge. Group. We could definitely do that. It, it all depends on what you all provide us as the two pools to compare. We can do it any way that's most helpful to you, but we awesome. have to have the sheds. So once we have the sheds, we know how you want to categorize them, which pool. And it could, it doesn't have to just be two pools. So like with uh, panther chameleons, they uh, went to Madagascar and collected like 300 different panther chameleons, took a picture, took a DNA sample. And so I actually have a bunch of genetic information across their whole range. So we can actually do different localities with panther chameleons. So there can be, you know, seven or 10 different pools. It doesn't have to just be two. So if you wanted to have, you know, what you would categorize as a dwarf, a super dwarf and a mainland or, you know, however you want to do it. Right. As long as you as a group agree, hey, I want to compare these two or I want to compare these three, whatever you feel comfortable with as a group, this is what we want to do. We can make that test happen as long as we get the sheds. Okay. So is a shed maybe more valuable from, say, someone taking a, an expedition to one of these islands we consider super dwarf? Because there's oh, starting we, to be more of that going on. I feel like we need to do that. Yeah, that would be great. I, I did talk to, uh, Duran also got me in touch with Garrett. Daniel? And oh, okay. I talked to uh, him Daniel Solis this. is the one I would talk to just because he's taking expeditions out. Say that again. Cal uh, Daniel Solis. Solis. Okay. Yeah. He's yeah. actually going to the islands. Uh, talking he has with the locals. Sheds. He's going to the cave systems where these animals are being collected. So yeah. I, I think I that would be invaluable. Yeah, because I the way that I see it with locality stuff, and I mean, I guess since we're the community and we're talking to you, this is just kind of mine and Nathan's perspective. And so I hope that more people are willing to chime in and give the input. But I feel like giving locality 
information and data based off of what we have in the US is is not uh, sufficient, right? Because a lot of stuff out there is questionable at best. And then even the stuff that we do consider tried and true with locality stuff is still just going off of relationship with importer exporter and just going off of reputability. And, and um, I know Daniel Solis has some sheds from some of the specific Superdorf islands and I'm going to shout out him right here. He's going back in 2024 and there's other people that are supposed to be going with him. So he he'll have more, but like, how much shed do you need from these islands collected? Because I don't know if you've heard, but you know, it's 35 hours on a plane just to get to Salayer Island. And then it's another 20 hours from Salayer Island to get to the Superdorf Islands. So it's not like, it's not like going to Madagascar or it's not like going to Malaysia or to Australia. Um, getting these sheds are, I mean, I, I loved what Daniel Soli said in the Reach Out Reptile um, uh, interview that he did, but I truly think that these like Kalatoa, Madu, Karumpas, um, I really do think that they are probably one of the most rare species of pythons out there just because of how isolated and far away these islands are from everywhere else. That's cool. Yeah, that would be amazing to be able to have some of those samples. I know... Um, Dr. Warren Booth had kind of gone down this road to try to do some of this with Retix. And he actually just started working at Virginia Tech. He's my neighbor now. So cool. um, I, he, uh, I, I need to meet up with him. He's already told me twice, hey, we got to meet up and, you know, have dinner or something. Um, so I need to do that and see where he's at because I know he at least collected some and started doing some work. I think not only with Retix, but also with like uh, some either carpets or, or scrubs or something like that. But, but yeah, if there any additional, whether they're um, imported animals to a zoo and they have actual GPS data for them, or it's a, a academic group that went out kind of like that one I talked about in Madagascar, if there's an academic group that's done something like this, I just haven't done the literature review for it for retics yet. Um, yeah. yeah. Any of that uh, that's been published and is publicly available I, you know, we can have that be part of, of what we're using to come up with a test, but yeah, any new stuff coming would be excellent. And I would say as far as how much of the shed, you know, if it's that, that difficult to get, I probably would keep as much of it as I could myself if I'm the one that collected it, but what you actually send to us could still be, you know, a fairly small piece, silver dollar at the most. That, that's we're... all you need though, in order to really like, you need one shed from one animal from that island a, a no, piece we need multiple shed. individuals okay yeah. that that's what i'm that that was my biggest concern is yeah, yeah, how many it. so like what what would the number be because like if we're gonna shoot this out there i'm gonna hit up daniel solis and be like you cannot come back to the u.s without 30 karumba <laughs> so as the the genetics person i will say as many as you can possibly get me um if you okay. can get 100 i'm super happy <laughs> um, okay. but you know I, I think that you also have to look at it as if you think that you can't do it, then you're definitely never going to do it. If you think that you can do it, then at least you have a chance. So if we think we can do it, we get as many as we can, even if it's three or four, that at least gives us something. We know there's three or four that for sure came from this place. And maybe we have, you know, another three or four from a zoo, another three or four from a keeper that's had them for the last 25 years and 
you know, there might be a few others we can say, hey, we can compare these, see how similar, if they all look really similar, then, you know, maybe that's a really good group to say this is from this island. Um, but, you know, if we, we say, hey, it's going to be too hard and we just don't try, then we definitely aren't going to get it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think that it's important for us to try to do, and I mean, at the very least, maybe in 50 years, we'll have enough people going on trips out there. And I mean, maybe it's not something that benefits us right away, but as far as like our animals are concerned and preserving locality, um, even if we can find that out in 40, 50 years, that's still, uh, that's still valuable for, I think the U S yeah. And it's, you know, it's the same with dog breed testing and with horse genetic testing and, you know, cattle genetic testing, like the, every, every year that goes by, you can compile more information, the more detailed information breeders are giving when they send these samples in to get tested. You know, you can build more and more like with 23andMe, if you get a 23andMe done, you know, six months later to say, hey, we just found out more information about, you know, this affects your sample. Another four months, you get another, you know, email that says, hey, we also know that 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 can be the same thing with our animals, but we have to start somewhere. Right. And once we start it, then we can make it better. Every year that goes by, we can make it better. Awesome. So a bit of a random question, just because you're one of the uh, few people we get to talk to uh, just with your profession that, you know, gets to also intermingle with AZA people. Um, do a lot of these zoos and aquariums have GPS data on the different species that they're bringing in or do they, do they rely just as heavily on the uh, captive breeding population that we see within the States? It's a good question. Yeah, I would say I see I see some of both. Um, I would say in academics, they're definitely much more strict. Um, in, with zoos, it's less the case, but it's certainly better from, there's usually more paperwork and things recorded and specific detailed information on an animal that was imported for a zoo than just with breeders. Um, a lot of the time when I'm trying to get as much information as I can, like we did a, a whole genome uh, paper on green tree pythons and, uh, you know, the, the keeper that provided the, the animal that we did that whole genome sequencing on, you know, he said it was imported this year and the importer said it was from this Island and that's, you know, as detailed as it was. And most of the time the zoos can provide. What locality was it? I think it was a Roo. Awesome. Correct. Cause I'm about to get a pair of a Roo. So good to know. <laughs> yeah. So it was Ian Bissell. He, uh, he sent. Oh, one nice. That was, uh, imported in as a wild caught and that was what we wanted we didn't want it to be you know something that had been farm bred or multiple generations or anything we wanted it to be as wild a, a specimen as possible for us to get the the whole genome sequencing on so yeah the, it seems to be more detailed information from zoos than from from breeders in general but um you know it, it still isn't always Perfect. And there are like with the Madagascar boas, the samples we got in, some of those were animals that are like 40 years old. And that's awesome. They do know where they came from. And I think you think even one of them that was in her like 35, 37, something like that, she was still uh, producing babies. (laughs) Nice. No, it's it's just a super interesting uh, topic for me, just because I, I know in the past, the AZA has been heavily reliant on even just the reptile smuggling industry. Yeah. Uh, not even reptile smuggling, just animal smuggling in, in general. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's definitely times when they don't they don't know much about the animal either. Right. Right. So for me, we cover the three main areas that I wanted to talk about in regards to retic specifically. So we talked about morphs. Um, we talked about locality. We talked about um, length and size. Now, I wanted to ask you another one of our Nathan, quit smiling, you child. Um, <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you one other question that a Patreon had that I also was going to ask you as well, but um, is it too early or typically what do we think um, the price to get these type of things? Like if we wanted to set a shed in, what would the price be roughly in order to get this? And then also like, do you guys do any clutch discounts, right? Or is it just price per individual? So up to this point, um, since we started, so right now, all of our testing is available through Morph Market or Clutch. Um, those are our two vendors. Um, and that we did it that way because I'm a scientist and Sean is a business person and we wanted to get as many tests available as possible. And so we didn't want to have to try to figure out the database stuff or you know, have to pay and work with someone to get it where Morph Market and Clutch already had that going for reptile keepers. Um, so for right now, those are the two vendors. And for ball pythons, just as an example, um, a single morph test is $65. For two morphs, it's $90. And then to get all of the, right now, like today, if you ordered a ball python panel, that has all of the genes we have to date. It's about 20, 21, 22, something like that. Um, that's $120 um, okay. because we can do, if you just want everything, we can actually do that pretty efficiently and cheap. We extract the DNA. We do all the tests at one time um, and we do it in bulk. So we usually only do those runs about once a month, sometimes twice a month. And so we, we batch them together and we do a really a large run so that we can get the cost per sample down quite a bit. So okay. that way we can, you know, if you say, Hey, I just got this ball Python. I don't know for sure what it is. We can just run it for everything and let you know what it's positive right. for, for the tests that we have. Um, and then a test like the uh, locality or length kind of a test that we've talked about. Um, in ball pythons, that's probably going to, we don't have that available yet, but that should be available in October. And that's when we'll have more morphs. And so it'll do um, sex determination. It'll do the 35 morphs we'll have by that time, all that. And that's going to probably be like $130, $140, something like okay. that. So proving um, out the Volta. What's that? So proving out the Volta. <laughs> yes. That's nice. something we should be able to do. And, nice. and the, uh, the average clutch size, you know, as we collect more data, we should be able to help uh, give breeders an idea of their offspring, which females are more likely to have larger clutches given the awesome. database that we'll build up. One, one thing that I kind of have a small concern on the retake end of the spectrum versus ball python, you know, you get a ball python clutch and it's, you know, eight, nine eggs for a decent sized clutch you know, I, I, it would be hard for a retic breeder to, to think about, you know, uh, a 60 to a hundred dollar test for 30, 40 animals. Yep. Um, so that it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but either way, still uh, a valuable thing for us to have, even if it's not utilized as much, still super valuable for us to continue sending sheds in. 
Yeah, well, and, and I have a question on that aspect well, too. Well, just, just to just to wrap that up, yeah. um, in October we also will be um, giving some quantity discount uh, cool. choices. So, and I would expect those prices I just told you. I would expect those to either stay the same or go down over time because we should be able to make it more efficient and and cheaper on our end. And whenever we can do that, we'll we'll drop the price so that it can be cheaper. We certainly want to make it so lots of people can do it. And volume, like if you're talking about a pregnancy test, the reason why they were able to make a pregnancy test so cheap and easy was because millions of people needed it. And so the more volume we do, whether it's ball pythons or ticks, corn snakes, whatever, the more volume we're doing, the cheaper we can make things. And so those, like I said, those prices I just told you a year from now, that might not, you know, be the same. It yeah, for maybe sure. Maybe improve on that, but definitely we'll at least have some quantity discounts uh, starting in October. Yeah. And, and just one question that I have that kind of goes along with all that is you were mentioning earlier that you have about 10 retake sheds, maybe a couple more hiding in that package. Is there any, uh, I don't know, maybe like donation that you're taking right now of just samples of retics just to get a baseline without people getting genetic testing. Back. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's definitely anything with retics right now. We, we have a, if you go to raregeneticsinc.com to help us, that gives you a PO box to send to. And that's just, if you want Sweet. a new test to be developed, like in this case with retics, yeah, just send that there and that will come directly to me, to my PO box here in Virginia. And I will get those sequenced and that will go towards de designing retic uh, tests. There's definitely no cost for that. You literally just have to use a normal stamp. If you're sending, uh, like if you're only giving me a small part of the shed, if you're giving me whole, you know, mainland retic sheds, then you're going to have to get boxes. But <laughs> if you just send me little pieces, most people can, and you use a small Ziploc, uh, most people can send two to four and just use one stamp and just snail mail it. It's totally fine. It's in a Ziploc bag, even if it gets rained on or whatever, the shed will still be good. Um, so it's pretty cheap and easy. If you're gonna send me 20 or 30, you know, you can get a, if it fits, it ships, uh, you know, just send it, you know, right. away. Uh, it doesn't need to cost very much, but that's the only cost is getting the sheds to us. And we will go to a few shows, like we'll be at the October Tinley. Um, I think we'll have some, Sean and I probably won't be there, but we'll have at least a couple people at the uh, NARBC in Arlington next month. Um, nice. So you could also save them up. If you know we're coming to a show near you, you could save them up for a couple months and just hand oh, them. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll bring plenty then because I'll, I'll be there. So Perfect. Um, yeah. So you were talking about um, – you were talking about your website and everything for our listeners. Can you go ahead and just kind of, as we wrap up, tell them where they can find you, um, how they can reach out to you, all that good stuff. So that way they have all the information they need to make sure they do this successfully. Yeah. So specifically to send sheds in I, and right after we get off this, I can text the, the address and you can include it in your show notes or however you want to do that. Yeah, uh, but it's a simple PO box. Anytime you're ready, you just send it to that PO box and it'll come to me and I'll get it going. Um, but yeah, so that's on our website, revgeneticsinc.com. And you click on the help us from the menu and that will tell you how to send sheds in to develop new tests. Um, but if you go to either our Instagram or our Facebook, uh, you scroll down a little bit. We have like a little video that shows you like if you're on your phone, it's a screen recording 
what it looks like when you go to the help us and you cool. know, the PO box. Um, we also have a YouTube show that we do once a week. It comes out on Monday nights called Reptile Genetics Weekly. And so we talk about these things all the time. You know, every week we've been doing it for about three months now. I think we're on episode 21 or something like that. We've been doing it every Monday, nice. like I said. So, so that's a big consistent. Yeah. hear what we're working on and what we've got working and what we're hoping to get soon, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, Ben, um, I, this was, I, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed geeking out about all this stuff and I'm sure we could probably go on for another couple hours, but, um, I, I just want to thank you again, short notice, being willing to be flexible with recording late. You're over on the East coast. So thank you so much for that. Um, and, uh, Hopefully we can have you back on somewhat in the near future with some updates. I definitely want to be a source for any updates that you have big in the retic industry. We would love to have you to come back on and let us know where you are with things. So this is definitely not going to be the first and only time it will be the first time, but it won't be the only time that, that we have you on, but just want to say thank you so much for coming on, man. Yes. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Have a good night, Ben. And um, yeah, we'll be, in touch soon. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right, guys, there you have it. Um, awesome episode. I had a great time listening to that. Uh, Nathan thoughts about it. Yeah, no, I just want to put a challenge out there. Anyone listening to this episode, you have no excuse not to send a retic shed in if you keep a retic at home. So collect those sheds. Let's get a sample size out there and let's, you know, just advance this a little further. Yeah. Don't forget our 1K sub giveaway. Go ahead and share our page. Share it on social media. Share it on your stories with the link in there. Help us get to 1K. And um, just want to give a major shout out to our Patreon members as your names are kind of flooding through the page. Thank you so much for all the support that you guys give us. And again, if you guys can't always listen to our or watch our episodes on YouTube, you can just listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're looking forward to seeing you guys, having you guys listen next Friday. Have a good one. 